There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're here to study the book of 1 Corinthians. It's our second Bible study uh, in 1 Corinthians. And this is a letter written by Paul to a church in Corinth that's sort of like a cross between Hollywood, Las Vegas, just a really a place known for sin um, and pagan worship. And what's happening in this church is Paul's writing this letter to correct them because there's all kinds of sinful activity in the church. The, the world is bleeding back into the church and affecting them. There's division. We covered that in chapter one, uh, right around verse 10 and all that whole section. Uh, there's people saying, well, I'm in the Paul group, and I'm in the Apollos group, and I'm in the this guy's group, and they're dividing, and there's little um, problems with that, and there's some pride going on as well. So we pray for, uh, I mean, sorry, there, Paul is writing this to correct them uh, on these things. We left off right around verse 20. There's a whole section here on the word wisdom, and there's a contrast in this whole section between the world's wisdom and the world's philosophy, and then Christian wisdom. And the, there's a big difference. Pick it up in verse 18 with me, if you will. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, there's one amen sign already. And some people are giving thumbs up. Great. Amen. All right. Verse 18 says, for the message of the cross, that's the gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He means unbelievers. But for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I want you to notice the tense of the verbs there. Being saved, perishing, present tense. Everyone on planet Earth, no exception, is moving in one direction. Being saved, coming closer to Jesus, or perishing. And... Uh, so the message of the cross, um, there are churches that say, you know, you really need to update the gospel for today. People can't really relate to the gospel the way it is. May I say, people couldn't relate to the gospel when it happened. Or 30 years later, 35 years later is when Paul's writing. Let me put it in, we're so used to the idea of Jesus. He was God and he was man and he, he lived a perfect life and he did miracles and then he died on a cross to pay for my sins and for yours. It's an amazingly loving thing to do. And then he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. There, that's Christian doctrine. That's the cross. That's the message of the cross. Here's the other side. Let me get this straight. You people believe in some poor carpenter from a despised place called Nazareth, yes, who wasn't guilty of a crime, yes, that's right, but wasn't smart enough to get off on the charges that he was charged with, and they beat him up and killed him, that's your hero, a bloody mess? You have to understand that the cross was so beyond other forms of capital punishment. There's writings from this time that say that proper people don't even speak the word. The message of the cross. We wear crosses, don't we? We talked about this a little bit last week. But it's like saying the message of the gas chamber or the electric chair or the guillotine. Oh, but see, to us, it's the power of God. That's what this section is about. But for unbelievers, verse 18, it's foolishness. It's kind of silly. 
Um, but for us being saved, it's the power of God. That'll come back later tonight. How is the cross powerful? And yet it's more powerful than anything on planet earth. I'll show you. Verse 19, for it is written, and he's quoting the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Now he's being ironic here. He means the worldly people that are really wise and um, Stephen Hawking and um, I just lost his name. Who's the guy that had the TV show on PBS called Nova? Nobody knows. Okay, never mind. <laughs> um, Carl Sagan, brilliant people, both of them. And there's been many others, but they're not believers and they make fun of Christianity and what have you. So God says, I'll destroy that worldly wisdom um, and frustrate it. So let's pick it up in verse 20. I'm just reading my notes here to see, did we skip anything? Um, so verse 20, he's, he's sort of um, being a little sarcastic, Paul is, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, where is the wise man, the wise person? Where is the scribe or teacher of the law? Same thing. Where is the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's verse 20. Okay, so what's going on here? So he's picking on three people. The, the wise man, people that the world would say, boy, that guy is really Smart. Charles Darwin, wow, he is really smart. And he's got a lot of wisdom. Now, this is not saying don't go to school, don't get an education. It's not saying that they have nothing to offer society. They might. But in terms of spiritual things, listen, eternal things, they got nothing. Right? Nobody ever listened to Carl Sagan or Charles Darwin or any of the others, uh, so-called wise people, Aristotle and all the philosophers, um, Socrates. Nobody ever listened to them and got saved. They got eternal life by listening to the philosophy. No, they didn't. By watching the science and learning about how we evolved from lower forms of life, which there's, believe me when I say, no evidence for that whatsoever. In hearing all those things, they might sound smart. He's saying, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe, the teacher of the law, the guy that knows the Old Testament, Jewish now, this person, inside out and yet missed the Messiah? Where, where is the third one? Philosopher of this age. Uh, and the last part, hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer is he has. Because those guys have PhDs behind their names, right? PhD, of course, stands for piled higher and deeper. Don't make me elaborate on that. But anyway, um, all these experts, he's saying they don't know anything. They're going to get to the end of their lives and stand before the throne of God and say, I have three PhDs. And God's going to say, big deal. Do you know my son, Jesus? You can't make it there on your own. And so uh, this unemployed carpenter from Nazareth who died a shameful death is actually the power of God, the ability to save people, change people from the inside out. Show me a philosopher that can do that. Show me a scientist that can change somebody, a sinner, 
an addict, a thief, an adulterer, whatever it may be, that can be changed from the inside out through Jesus Christ. That's the only real way. The power of God unto salvation. Uh, we already talked about that. So uh, he's starting off by saying, where is this wise, so-called wise person? In other words, he's nowhere is kind of what he's saying. Sounds like the Beatles song, Nowhere Man, right? Um, Old Testament, Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, that doesn't mean being afraid of God. It means having great reverence and awe for God who could speak and make the universe. Uh, let's see. Here's another one. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. Proverbs 3. Proverbs, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He's leading up to a point here about who the kind of people that get saved. And there is a certain type of people, not always, but generally so. We'll get to that in a second. So what's the wisdom of the world? What, what do the wise people teach? Science disproves God and the Bible. We don't need it, right? The wisdom of the world is money talks. If it feels good, do it. Go for all the gusto you can. I can earn my way to heaven. You ever witness to somebody about Jesus and they say, that's great. If that works for you, that's great. But I don't really need that. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'll be okay. I'm not an ax murderer. I'm not a, I don't go shoot people in a mall. I'm a pretty nice guy. And yet, what does the Bible say about our, all our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's eyes. So, um, Science. Another one is humanism. Humanism says, man, we can do it on our own. We have the smarts. If you look at human history, 2,000 years ago, there was crime, there was uh, murder, there was rape, there was all kinds of problems, stealing and ripoffs and wars. And we've had 2,000 years since then and before that got the same problems. You read the newspaper? How many here think society's really getting better? You got to have your head in the sand, right? This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Don't make me sing that song. Okay. That's the wisdom of the world, the education, the money, the power, all the things that it, that it values, God sort of laughs at. So we're leading up to a point. Let's keep rolling. Has not, end of verse 20, God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Absolutely. Because who has eternal life because of any of those things? Three PhDs. I'm worth $100 billion. Good for you. Spiritually, that's a zip, a zero, right? Means nothing. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its so-called wisdom, quotes, did not know him. Did you see that? We'll come back to it. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Do you see the contrast? Through the, through the simple gospel, people get saved. Saved from what? Redeemed. From what? Slavery to sin. From spiritual death. From hell. Yes, we preach hell here. 
It's a real thing it's in the Bible. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Go back to the beginning of 21. In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. All the, Nobody can investigate with a microscope or a telescope and find God. If you're smart enough and spiritual enough, you can look at the stars and the universe and say, come on, somebody had to make all this. Didn't just happen. It's ridiculous, right? The chances of that are zero. But you can't know God intrinsically by going to a forest. And I have neighbors that think you can go to a forest and just feel, I know God being in the forest. I hug the trees and the, you know, that's like saying I went to the Louvre and saw the Mona Lisa and I now know the artist. Well, you might know a tiny bit about him, but to know God, it can't be done by a person that's not saved because they're spiritually not sick. Biblically, they are dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Anyway, in the wisdom of the world, he's being facetious with so-called wisdom of the world. Using all that wisdom, they never got to know God, never got any closer. Second half of 21, God was pleased through the foolishness. He's being facetious because the gospel is supposed to be foolishness. The so-called foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The result of science may be technological advances. It may be greater knowledge and greater observation. But in terms of spirituality and getting to know God and eternal life and solving, listen carefully, the, T-H-E, one problem on planet Earth. Oh, there's many problems. Listen, you name, you make a list of all the problems on planet Earth and I'll put a check mark next to each one. Sin, sin, sin sin. It's all related to sin, every problem. And all that science and all that wisdom and all those philosophers, they never get any closer to it. I told you this before I went to San Jose State, thought it would be fun to take a philosophy class. And it was a guy, a Jewish guy, Dr. Herman Shapiro was his name. Real smart guy, little Jewish guy. And he smoked, this is in the days when you could smoke indoors, he smoked a pipe. And he would pause and light the pipe. And it just was a very dramatic kind of a guy. And he said that some of you may believe in God. I'm going to give you an, uh, I'm going to give God an opportunity to prove himself now. This gets real quiet in the room. It was in a big auditorium, this class. I'm going to give God 30 seconds to kill me, starting now. And he lit his pipe, didn't say anything for 30 seconds. There, I disproved God. And so people raised their hand and said, what if God's loving and doesn't want to kill you and wants to give you the opportunity to believe? And he didn't believe it. Anyway, philosophy doesn't get you any closer to where we need human reasoning, all of that. That's not how you get to know God. I'll give you a hint. And if you've been to this Bible study, you're going to know what I'm talking about. You can't get to know God unless you have the proper equipment. We'll get to that in a second. So um, there was a college and there was a class, not the one I was just describing, but another one where uh, the, the students said to the teacher, who was a Christian, we've come to the conclusion there's no God. And the teacher asked the kids, let me ask you a question. Out of all the conceivable and knowable knowledge in the universe, 
What percentage of knowledge do you have of that? Do you have half of all the knowledge? That's about everything. No. A third? No. 10%? No. They settled on the class 5%, which is generous, let's face it, right? I'd say maybe it's a 0.001. And he said, okay, let's, let's grant that you have 5% of the knowledge, which means you don't have what? 95% of the knowledge. Isn't it possible that God is in that other 95%? In fact, isn't it almost likely if that's all the knowledge you have, can you make any intelligent statement about it? And the answer, of course, is no. Um, one commentator wrote, a blind man is no judge of colors. A deaf man is no judge of sound. The unsaved, spiritually dead sinner is no judge of spiritual things. He doesn't have the equipment. What's the equipment? We'll get to that. Um, so it pleases God to do it this way for a reason. Um, see the end of verse 21, the second half, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It tickles God to no end that that's the way people get saved. As we've said before, the gospel is so deep, it's like an ocean that you can never find the bottom of. You can never plumb the depths of it. And yet it's so simple. It's a body of water about this deep that a little three-year-old can wade in and understand the basic idea of a human being who is also God dying for the sins of the world. It's a beautiful thing. Um, he saves those, notice, who believe. That's the requirement. Doesn't say who donate a certain amount. Isn't it interesting? And wouldn't it be weird if the way you get saved is you got to be, you got to have an IQ over 135. That leaves a lot of people, including me, out, right? It kind of seems unfair. Or you got to have at least $10 million. Again, we're all pretty much out of luck here, right? By a long shot. But what if the gospel is such that the poorest, least educated person can get it just as much as a billionaire can, or the guy with three PhDs. But you've probably noticed, haven't you? And he's gonna mention this and we'll talk about it more then. Most Christians are not billionaires, PhDs, lawyers, doctors, presidents, senators. There have been some, but not most. We'll talk more about that when we get to that part of this text. Verse 23. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Let's take those two verses apart. Okay, Matthew 16, Mark 8, John 2, over and over in the Gospels, the Jewish leaders come up to him, teacher, to Jesus, do a sign, show us a sign from heaven. Remember? like he's David Copperfield and can do a little sleight of hand and make a, a dove appear kind of thing. Da -da. Don't you know that if he had made fire come down from heaven, do you know what would have happened? You think they would have got on their knees and received him as their Lord and Savior? They would have said, do another one. Let me go get my sister. Do it again and again. Jews seek signs again and again in the Gospels. Did he do 
miracles, not on command for them, if you notice, right? In fact, when asked that, I think it's in Matthew, he says, no sign will be given to you except, and they're all ears now, oh, what's the sign? A sign means a miracle, right? And miracles, they're called signs because signs point to something else. A person does a miracle, it's pointing to a certain amount of power right? Jesus did creative miracles. And by that, I mean, he could make a, a leg that isn't able to walk, create it all new with new tendons and muscles and nerves and bones. And it's suddenly the person can walk or see or hear or speak, right? Um, so they, they ask him, do a sign. He says, no sign will be given you except a sign of, anybody know? Jonah. Jonah. I mean, the Old Testament guy with the whale and the, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Yeah, these are Jewish scholars. They know the story. The son of man, his favorite title for himself, will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Dead, buried, and will rise again because Jonah got spit out of a whale, right? And in a sense was resurrected. There are scholars that think Jonah died in that whale, by the way. I'm not going to sell that one too hard. I don't know. But Jews, they want signs. Prove it with miracles. My contention is anybody's faith whose, whose faith was founded on, well, I saw a miracle, is never as strong as the person who just reads the gospel and lets it speak to them in their spirit. I'm not saying if you've seen a miracle, you're going to hell or anything stupid. I'm just saying the problem with miracles is you need another one and another one and another one and another one. Unless you see it properly for what it is, right? Jews seek signs. We want miracles. Greeks look for wisdom. The other way to prove the gospel to a Greek is logically reason it out with me philosophically. By the way, uh, Descartes, you know this philosopher, he's famous for saying, I think, therefore, I am. Okay, thank you for that, Descartes. Um, that's a la carte, an idea. Um, I think, therefore, I am. Isn't that interesting that the name of God in the Bible is I am? Anyway, he wasn't a Christian, uh, at least not when he said it. Okay, so the Jews want it to be reasoned to them, and they can't make any reasoning argument, philosophical argument out of, so your guy's dead? Well, he rose from the dead, and, and they crucified him, and he was a bloody mess, and yes. That's just not logical to them. Greeks don't like it. Um, they want reason, logic. The cross makes no sub. No, no sense to them. Verse 23, but we, Jews demand signs, 22, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We're going to come back to those four words. We preach Christ crucified. Keep that in mind. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Okay. We preach Christ crucified. That's the gospel in four words, maybe two words. Christ, 
Jesus Christ, right? The man who is fully God as well, his character and the fact that he died for the sins of the world. Now you can preach sermons on his miracles, Jesus's teaching, Jesus's perfect character, Jesus's virgin birth, his ascension to heaven. It's all biblical, that's all fine. But the heart of the gospel is that God loved the world so much, he sent his son to live the perfect life you and I could never live, sinless, and die the horrible death of separation from God on that cross that you and I deserve, which is hell in a sense. There was a church in an old building and they decided we're going to put up a big sign on the bricks outside of our church. So they cleared away some of the ivy and they put up a sign that said, we preach Christ crucified. And they did. But as the years went by and pastors came and went, they stopped preaching the whole crucifixion thing. It was just not seeming to go over that well with the people and it's kind of bloody. And so as the church changed, the ivy grew and covered the word crucified. But the sign still said, we preach Christ, which is pretty good. But they left out the cross. Things went downhill from then. And eventually they started preaching a little less about Jesus and even less about Jesus Christ and just more about be the best people you can be. Do unto others. Love people. And the ivy grew again and covered the word Christ. So instead of we preach Christ crucified, crucified and Christ were behind the ivy and it just said, we preach. And eventually they even stopped preaching and it just sort of became a club for people and a feel-good kind of a place where people got an uplifting message, like Joel Osteen, for example. And eventually, the ivy grew over the word preach, and it just said, we. That's a dangerous thing. Go back to this verse. We preach Christ crucified. If you go to a church and the whole cross, the whole sacrifice for sin, the whole humility and the dying in our place is not preached, you should find another church. We preach Christ crucified, and now he's going to define it. For Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's a scandal. It's something you trip over. They can't get over it. And here's the reason we've talked about this before many times. In the Old Testament scriptures, there's a character called the anointed one, Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince, okay? The coming Messiah. They're still waiting. Jews are still waiting. 4,000 years later, they're still looking for him. He's supposed to be triumphant, powerful, free up, uh, reward righteousness, punish the enemies of Israel and all holiness, and reign on the earth forever. That's who they're looking for. And Jesus comes, a, a weak person, very humble, really wasn't weak, but appeared weak to them. Humble, dies on a cross, can't be the guy. We've said this before, there are two sets of scriptures about this Messiah. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, he's a suffering servant. His feet and his hands are pierced. Sound like anybody you know? 
None of his bones are broken, even though he's crucified, and they always broke the bones of crucified people. On and on. They missed him the first time. They're still looking. But many Jews I know believe in Jesus. They realize this is our Messiah. For Jews, it's a stumbling block, though. And uh, let's see, verse 23, foolishness to Gentiles, meaning the Greeks. Those terms are often interchangeable in the Bible. It's foolishness. Your, your hero is a guy that died of capital punishment. Is that right? Yes. But he didn't have to. He was not a victim. They think he was a victim. He could have stopped it any time he wanted. You remember the ironic thing that is said while he's on the cross? I believe it's in the Gospel of Matthew as well. The Jews who are watching him on the cross bleed out, say, it's interesting. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Could he? Yes. Yes, he could have, right? He at one point says, I could call down legions of angels when he's getting arrested. Remember, we could stop this right now, but this is God's will. It's my will. The ironic thing in that statement is he can't save himself. And in a way, that's true. He loves us so much, he can't come down off that cross. Remember, they even say, come down off the cross and then we'll believe. He can't do it because he loves you and me too much. So it's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. That's the gospel. No, wait, there's a third category, verse 24. But to those whom God has called, these are the believers, both to Jews, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's saying what's foolishness to some people and a stumbling block to others is the absolute most powerful thing in the universe. What else can change billions of lives? Positive thinking, seminars on, you know, all kinds of philosophies and classes and PhDs and nothing works. To us, uh, lost my place. There we go. Um, it's the Christ. Notice it's a person, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The ultimate wisdom to save people this way right? You say, well, couldn't Jesus have just come to earth and snapped his fingers and just saved everybody? And the answer is no. You're saying he couldn't do it? No, he couldn't do it. Why is that? Because the wages of sin is death. And if you sin, you got to die, meaning you got to pay. Who hasn't sinned here? Anybody? You're all liars if you raise your hand. <laughs> Nobody hasn't sinned. So the wages of sin is death. This is a law just like gravity. You can try to fight it, but drop a vase, it's going to break every time. So he couldn't just snap his fingers. Someone has to die in their place. Oh, so Moses, Elijah, Abraham, David. No, 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 no. Sinner, 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 sinner. They're not a blemishless lamb. It had to be God himself, and there had to be a death in our place. Unbelievably beautiful and wise. Christ, the power of God, who changes people from the inside out forever and gives eternal life. 
and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God, he's being facetious. The so-called foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness so-called of God is stronger than human strength. What looks weak and foolish to the world is actually unbelievably strong and wise. Just unbelievably beautiful, uh, his reasoning. Now he's going to talk about uh, what they used to be. And don't read this as third person, meaning somebody else's mail. It's about you as well. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 24, I'm just reading my notes here. You can talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, um, that's an incredibly powerful thing that can change hopeless sinners. Satan's control uh, is over them and he frees them, turns them into whole new creations and can put the Holy Spirit of God living inside of each of us. No philosophy can do that. Um, I'm going to save that for later. Uh, okay, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, pretty good. Um, uh, verse 26, brothers and sisters, who is he talking to? Believers. Think of what you were when you were called. God called you, drew you, saved you. In fact, he chose you before the foundation of the world. If you don't believe me, read Romans 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Remember I said that earlier? Most Christians are not PhDs. They're not kings and queens. They're not millionaires. They're not owners of IBM or Google or Amazon. Um, he's saying that we, there's a humility to the gospel, which makes it more beautiful. Imagine if Jesus was born in a palace with a silver spoon in his mouth. A multimillionaire, the son of a king. Well, he is the son of the king of the universe, isn't he? He's born in a feed trough because there's no room for him. He lives in Nazareth, a despised place. He's a blue-collar worker, right? He's a carpenter. He ends up getting arrested, beat up, killed, and allows it to happen. There's a beautiful meekness to the gospel. Think of what you were when you were called. And that includes the, the fact that we were really bad sinners, weren't we? Think of what you were. Not many, see that word many, M-A-N-Y. We'll come back to that. Not many of you were wise by human standards. You didn't have the PhDs. A few were. Not many were influential, senator, congressman. Not many were of noble birth. Any sons or daughters of kings or queens here? Why is that? God, verse 27, chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We'll get to that reason. There was a famous um, influential lady, there it is in my notes, Lady Huntington, uh, an influential friend of uh, John, the Wesley brothers and Whitfield, going back a few centuries who was a believer, but she was wealthy and powerful and influential. And she said about this verse that she was saved by an M. 
because it doesn't say not any of you were wise or influential or noble birth. It says not many with an M. Kind of a neat thing. God chose the so-called foolish things, the humble things, the weak things to shame the strong. Listen to the wisdom of doing it that way. Imagine if Christianity was just very, very strong, powerful, wealthy, power, uh, influential people. That's who the Christians were. Then you would say, well, no wonder. Look at the money they have behind. If Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, uh, who owns yeah Amazon, and you know Bill Gates, uh, who owns Microsoft. No wonder those guys are Christians. That's why it's grown so much. They're not, right? Or they, he had the smartest people of his time, most educated. No wonder. But if Christianity grew from a little group of 11 guys into the largest religion in the world without any of that, you would have to conclude it must really be God. What else could it be? Right? It's offensive to think that the beginning of witnessing to somebody is at some point you got to tell them the truth. You deserve judgment from God. You're alienated from God. You're a sinner. You need a savior. Humankind, we don't like that. I can save myself. I'll do it on my own kind of thing. The beauty of the gospel is that he used weak, uh, uninfluential people at first and still does, but not exclusively. What do you mean? Well, it was shepherds first, remember, who were powerless. They weren't powerful people. But then a couple years later, who shows up to see the little baby, the little two-year-old? Wise men, right? Um, fishermen first, right? The apostles. It's thought that the one apostle with uh, college degrees, so to speak, was Judas. Did you know that? Probably the most ed educated one. Um, first fishermen, then the educated people like Apollos, Paul, etc. Most ancient Christians were poor. They were slaves. It's a miracle that it spread anyway. It's beautiful. Uh, Tim Keller calls it the upside down kingdom. The most powerful hardly ever get in. The most wealthy, hardly ever. The reason is, if you have that much power or money, you think, who needs God? I've got it all. I'm in control here. But you can lose all that stuff. Lose your power, lose your money, lose your fame, lose your good looks. Look around the room. Everybody's losing their good looks one day at a time, me included. Um, the Corinthians uh, were glorifying men, robbing God of his glory. Paul wants them to see Think of what you were when you were saved. Uh, God chose the lowly things to shame the strong. Verse 28, the lowly things of this world and the despised things, things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Verse 29, here's where he was going all along. So that, <coughs> excuse me, no one may boast before him. That moves them all down a few pegs. Do you know why? Because there's a lot of pride there in that church. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. Meaning, you guys that are of Peter, we're smarter than you, our group, our little clique. And they're saying, oh no, we're smarter than you. Peter was an apostle. Oh yeah, well, Paul was a Pharisee and he knew that. 
He's saying, listen, forget all that so that no one may boast before him. What could you boast about in front of God if you think about it? Do you know who I am? God says, who cares, right? Do you know what I did on the earth? God says, do you know what my son did on the earth? No boasting before God. It's a beautiful thing. The upside down kingdom. Um, let's see. What do you mean by upside down kingdom? He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself. You ever meet those people that are always talking about how great they are? That person, the Bible says, will be humbled. You know the kind of guy that just talks about himself all the time? Talks about himself for an hour straight and then says, enough about me. What about you? What do you think about me? Uh, wisdom was greatly valued. People look up to those sorts of heroes, so-called heroes. Verse 29, no one may boast before God. Meaning what? It's all grace. I've given you this analogy before. Just go with me with it. I always picture that when a person is a sinner and God has called them and drawn them and they are ready to receive Jesus as their savior. I'm ready to come to Jesus. I'm at the end of myself. I'm ready. The doorway, and I mean this in a symbolic sense. Don't take it too literally. The doorway for me as a sinner or you to get to God, to get to Christ, is about this high. What do you mean? You don't wall, it's not big golden doors and you waltz in and go, here I am. You got to get on your knees and sort of crawl in because you don't deserve to be there in the first place. It's a low doorway. You got to bend down. You got to worship. It's humble. You might even get a little dirty down there. But once you get in, Jesus says, stand up, my child, and embraces you and gifts you and the rest is history, right? It's, it's a beautiful thing. A low doorway. That'll be on the test. You should go write it down. Uh, uh, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Um, the reference is from Jeremiah 9. If you're going to glory in something, you're going to boast in something, boast about your God, not about yourself. But it's human nature to boast about oneself, isn't it? Um, the Lord did it all. Verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Who's the, the subject of that sentence? Who's the him? It can't be Christ. It's God. You see, God's the subject of verse 28. God chose the lowly things of the world to nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before him, God, the Father. It's because of him, verse 30, that you're in Christ Jesus. Translation, it's because of God that you're a believer. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm a very spiritual person. I looked at the different religions. I did my research, and I came to God through Christ. No, you didn't. It may feel that way. I used to think that. What does this verse say? It's because of him that you're a Christian. Because of who? God. Chose you. Called you. Drew you. 
woke you up, maybe knocked you down a few times to get your attention. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, to be in Christ Jesus and have him in you, it's a mutual in kind of a thing, is a metaphor for being a Christian. And him, Jesus, has become for us the wisdom, wisdom from God. And three things, our righteousness, it's not our own, it's his. Our holiness, he was holy, we weren't. And our redemption, that's a slavery word, where someone's owned, I'm owned as a slave by somebody else, and somebody who has money or power can come and redeem me, meaning buy me back. What's the price to get Joe out of hock here in the prison world? Well, you'd have to die for him. And Jesus says, okay, for each one of us. Let's take our two-minute break right now and stretch our legs and go eat chocolate in the entryway. But don't uh, be long because it's only two minutes. We'll be right back. I'm going to turn my screen off. Those of you on Zoom, stay there. I'll be right back. Don't go away. There we go. Find your seats, if you will, those of you that are here, and we're going to get back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're just about done. Um, so uh, no one can boast, verse 30, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. Translation, if your faith, if your salvation, if your eternal life, if your forgiveness is the most valuable thing in your life, then it's because of him, meaning who? God the Father. Therefore, you owe him everything, right? He's the one that gave you human life in the first place. Um, let's see. He's become for us the wisdom of God that is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. None of that is earned. It's all his given to us. Therefore, verse 31, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, there's something to boast about, right? Absolutely. Keep in mind you know, when you are a fan of a football team, there's always the, our team's better than your team. Or you're a fan of a boxer, our boxer's better than your boxer, he's stronger, whatever. In religion, it's the same thing. Except there is only one God, right? Every other, the Bible calls them in 1 Corinthians, so-called gods. Allah of Islam is an invention of human beings. All the gods of Hinduism, 330 million, yes, you heard right, gods of Hinduism, those are the invention of human beings. And if you ask me, behind the human beings, whoever came up with it, Muhammad or whoever else uh, for Islam, was a demon or Satan himself. Because Satan doesn't care if you worship him or not, he just wants you to not worship Jesus and God the Father. Anybody else is fine with him. You worship that little idol on the totem pole, or you worship the trees in Yosemite, that's fine. Or Mother Earth, Gaia, and all that, that's fine with Satan. Just don't worship Jesus. There's only one God. Boast in the Lord. End of This is the end of chapter one. Let's move on to chapter two. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. His point in, say, in saying that goes back to when he was, the people were saying, I'm of Paul. I'm an I'm a Apollos Christian. I'm a Peter Christian. He's saying, don't boast in men. Don't boast in anything except God himself. Chapter 2. Um, let's see. He's going to give an example 
of his own preaching there and what the wisdom of God can do. He's going to show you in this chapter. Verse 1. And so it was with me. Let me turn here as well. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. So he's saying he didn't come with all the fancy jargon and the $8 words with nine syllables so he would sound intelligent and would win them over since he knew they love the whole wisdom thing. He didn't come with eloquence, that means great ability to speak, or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I, verse 2, resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What, what was that other verse? We preach Christ crucified. That's what he preached. He's saying, I didn't try to talk you into it with reasoning and fancy language and try to impress you. Um, he just proclaimed the testimony about God. There's a thing that uh, a lot of preachers have a problem with and teachers, including me sometimes, I'll confess. And that is, we feel like we understand the gospel, but we need to make it as entertaining and as interesting and as we possibly can. And the truth is, the gospel's beautiful and perfect on its own. And any attempt to dress it up beyond what the Bible says is kind of dumb. Anyway, I'm admitting I'm dumb, and it's not the first time. Um, so when he came to you, he's talking about the Corinthian church. He, he shows up in uh, Acts 17. He meets Priscilla and Aquila, who are tent, tent makers. Um, he ends up staying there 18 months. Um, we'll, we'll get to the background in a second. He supported himself the whole time, money-wise, by making tents. Priscilla and Aquila were also tent makers. They had something in common. They were Christians as well. Um, so no, he didn't try to use human wisdom to logically talk him into it. Just proclaim the testimony about God. The job of Christians, whether it's an apostle like Paul planning churches or Billy Graham or you, is just to cast out the seeds, spread the gospel. Let God do the work. No, let me talk you into it. Listen, God either is drawing that person or he's not. He's either prepared that heart or he hasn't. If he is preparing it, believe me, you're going to see the seeds start to grow. The person's going to be interested. They're going to start to cry. They're going to get on their knees eventually. If they don't, you pray for them and move on to the next bag of seeds, right? Verse two, for I resolved, he's saying, I made up my mind to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him, there it is again, crucified. It doesn't mean that he knew nothing at all. Paul was an expert in the Old Testament law, uh, the Old Testament Bible. He was a protege uh, of uh, his mentor was Gamaliel. You say, I never heard of him. A famous rabbi, one of the one or two most knowledgeable of that era. <clears throat> Excuse me. Gamaliel took Paul under his wing and taught him. So Paul knew the Old Testament so well, the Judaism thing. He was persecuting Christians, do you remember? Because he thought Christianity was a cult. 
like a Jim Jones thing, like a David Koresh thing. We have to get rid of this until God got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, chapter 9 of Acts. You can read about that. I resolved to know nothing. I'm not going to convince you with my knowledge or brag about what I know and who I am. I'm just going to preach the gospel and let it work out the way it's supposed to. All I preached was Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ, Son of God, Messiah, and him crucified. That's the heart of the gospel. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Is he being facetious? Is he exaggerating there? No, not really. Okay, what's the backstory? The backstory is before he gets to Corinth, he's been beaten up, shipwrecked, persecuted, arrested, and then he goes to Athens, Greece, which is a real center for the philosophers. He's in Corinth a year and a half. Do you know how long he's in Athens? Two days, one or two, scholars disagree. And he's out of there. And he leaves there a little dejected because it didn't go that well there for him. All the philosophers, a lot of scholars think that he tried to play their game. Let me logically explain the gospel to you and I'll use some big words and speak with a British accent and it didn't work. So he gets to Corinth and he's weak, he's trembling, he's beaten up, he's dejected, and he just, God speaks to him and says, just tell him about Jesus Christ and the fact that he died for them, crucified. Let the gospel do its work. You don't have to dress it up. Um, there's another theory, and it's probably true. Paul was an unhealthy dude. How many know that? In chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he talks about that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Some sort of physical ailment, his way of saying it. That's what most people think. There's all kinds of theories, epilepsy, malaria, um, vision problems. Some say um, being tormented with um, demons and that kind of thing. Who knows? He never describes what it is. He just says in 2 Corinthians 12 that three times he asked God, please take this thorn in the flesh away from me, this physical weakness. And each time God said, no, I like you this way. Because when you're weak, then my strength comes through. Beautiful. He's probably reasoning with God. You ever do this? I do. I'm sick, Lord. If you make me well, I can do the Bible study even better. Right? <laughs> like, God, thank you for that, Joe. Uh, he comes there weak, timid, with great fear and trembling. He's just sort of got beaten up in a way. Verse 4. Uh, let me look at my notes here, too. Um, yeah, we talked about the eye problems. Yeah. Uh, a guy named Morgan who wrote a commentary on this book wrote, he quaked, he trembled, he was fearful. That is the secret in preaching. Don't come there all full of yourself and all conceited. You, God chooses the weak things of the world so that his strength will come through. God tells Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, God talking, my strength, listen to this, upside down kingdom. My strength is perfected in weakness. 
Not my strength is perfected in strength, like you be strong and then I can use you. My strength is best in weakness because there's no other place to look except it's got to be your strength that gets me through this. Not money, not power, not fame, not 10 degrees from college. My strength is perfected in weakness. I came to you, verse 3, in weakness with great fear and trembling. Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He's saying those words, when they clicked and some people believed, that wasn't me and my words and how good of a preacher I am. It was the Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit in him. Strong, smart, powerful, eloquent people, when they spread the gospel, there's a temptation to get in the way of the Holy Spirit and take over. Weak, humble people don't do that as much because they let the Spirit speak however he wants. Um, a, a demonstration of the Spirit's power, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is an important verse. Did you see that? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, reasoning, philosophy, logic, deep thoughts. Because if your faith rests on those sorts of things and someone could reason with you and philosophize with you and talk you into faith, someone else can talk you out of faith, right? The people that, have, uh, that I know of, a few, that got into, oh, what's the guy's first name? Sam Harris. Anybody heard that name? Um, gosh, there's a few others. I'm forgetting them now. These are famous atheists who in the last 20 years have written books. Oh, Christopher, I can't think of his last name. Anybody know the famous, what is it? Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, he's dead now. He's a Christian now, right? Or at least he knows. Christopher Hitchens, famous Christian. He debated all these, uh, famous atheists, sorry, debated, debated all these Christians. Logically, it's impossible, blah, blah, blah. And Sam Harris wrote books. If you became a Christian because it made logical sense to you and you reasoned using your philosophical mind, those guys might talk you out of it. Verse uh, five, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on what? God's power. That's where it's got to stay. Starts with the word of God, starts with changed lives, starts with the absolute beauty and humility of the gospel. I'm looking at notes now. Um, where our faith rests is important. That's why the more you learn of the Bible and you know two things, what you believe, listen, and why you believe it. Meaning where in the Bible does it say that? I just believe it. You should know where it says it. Why you believe what you believe. You'll be way less um, uh, tempted to be blown away by different doctrines and what have you if you have a firm foundation on scripture that's why we do what we do here right study every book of the bible one verse at a time your faith should rest not on human wisdom on god's power um we already talked about that uh 
every, you probably figured this out. You know that we pray before every Bible study. Driving here, the night before the Bible study, the day of the Bible study, I pre prepare and what have you. But I'm praying the whole time. I'm praying in the car driving over here. And no, I don't close my eyes when I'm driving. But I'm praying the whole time, please, God, let your spirit speak through me. Let it be less of me, more of your Holy Spirit. To the point that there's times in the Bible study where um, I, things come out of my mouth and I almost feel like a spectator and I go, oh, that was good. I, I don't mean that in a conceited way. I mean it like it didn't come from me. It's not in the notes. It's a God thing. But, and same thing for Pastor Cody. We pray before he preaches, before we do the music, right, Jeff? Uh, and Jeff, you have to be named Jeff if you want to be a part of the, the worship uh, people. Okay. Um, so that's what I pray that it would be God's spirit would speak through me. Absolutely. Um, it doesn't mean you don't prepare for Bible study or for a sermon. I'm giving the sermon here at the end of the month of January. Very scary thing for me. I'm preparing already. I want to learn all I can, get it together with notes, but I'm going to pray like crazy that day that let the spirit speak. Uh, and he does, he shows up, thank God. That's the reason this Tuesday night Bible study is still going. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, verse six, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Good one. Verse six, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age, worldly wisdom, philosophy, reason, or of the rulers of this age, who, he says, are coming to nothing. You see that? He's saying here, look, it's not like the gospel is stupid. It's mundane. It's elementary. He's saying there is tremendous wisdom in it, right? But he's saying it's not the world's wisdom. We already talked about what the world considers wisdom. It's not the world's wisdom of this age um, or the rulers of this age, we'll come back to that, who are coming to nothing. Who are the rulers of the age? This is first century, right around 55 AD. Who are the rulers of that age? Well, it would be the current emperor of Rome, right? And lower down like Pontius Pilate, who are more governors of certain areas. It would be kings in other countries. It could be that. It could be the, the leaders of the universities and the very wisest people. He's not using their wisdom. In fact, he says they're coming to nothing. Uh, but there's another theory about the rulers. In the letters Paul writes, there are times when he talks about the rulers and spiritual powers, meaning demons, Satan. They too are coming to nothing. So there is wisdom in the gospel, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. It's entertaining to go through your life and learn the gospel and learn what the Bible says. And then you have to go to school, most of us, public school, and you learn why all those things are wrong, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He spoke it. 
into existence. Let there be light. <clears throat> there was light. Let there be planets in the, in the star and in, in the heavens. Let there be animals. He spoke it into existence. Well, it's not very scientific there, Joe. No, it isn't. Or is it? What do you mean? You go to school and you know what you learn? That ain't how it went down. You see, the universe created itself. Really? Yes. A billions and billions of years ago, there was matter condensed. This is the theory, and I'm not kidding, of the Big Bang. There was matter condensed to the size of an egg. Very, very dense. And it exploded. The Big Bang. And it spread out at such an alarming rate that by themselves, planets and suns and stars and moons galaxies were formed all from that one big bang what where did they get this do you know it's a fairly recent theory they got it because now we have such good telescopes we can look way out into space and when they do they see you know things are moving away from the center Almost like slow motion, like a large explosion occurred a long time ago. Like, let's rewind the tape. And at one point, everything was condensed and it's spreading outward, almost like a curtain. I know, Big Bang. Professor, yes. Who put the egg there? Well, let's move on. We're almost out of time. Um, professor, yeah. Who lit the fuse? Oh, we're out of time. Sorry, I'll answer that uh, another day. Professor, yeah. When have you ever seen an explosion create order? Like, let's get a bunch of stuff together in the parking lot out here and let's blow it up and maybe it'll make a factory or a Mercedes Benz or an airplane or something. It's like saying you're walking through the jungle and you find a watch, a Rolex watch and you say, you see this? Yeah. Oh, look, it's ticking. This just happened. Maybe there was a tornado in a factory and the parts just assembled on their own. Well, that's stupid. It is really stupid. Who lit the fuse? When has, have you seen an explosion create the order of planets in predictable orbits with moons going around them and gravity and let alone life on the earth is just a joke how they try to get around that. There's a law of science called the law of, I just lost the name, can you believe it? Um, the, the prefix is bio and the law is that life this is a scientific law. Life only comes from life. There's a chicken. Chicken has to have a mom and a dad, right? It doesn't just pop out on its own. And yet that's what evolution teaches. What's your point in all this, Joe? We're getting a little sleepy. My point is that's the wisdom of the world. That's the wisdom that says, oh, the gospel's so ridiculous. If your foundation is anything but the Bible, you might get fooled. Steve Riley, the pastor of this church, you've heard him maybe say it, that he was a Christian and really believed until he went to school and learned about evolution that there's no need for God, it all happened on its own. And thought, hmm, we've been lied to.
Not really. They're lying, present tense. There is a wisdom. Uh, and those rulers are coming to nothing. Verse 7. No, we declare God's wisdom. A mystery. Believe it or not, that in Greek is the word mysterion. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now, a mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden before and is now has now been revealed. Okay? If you read the whole Old Testament, you will see all kinds of types and shadows and hints about the Messiah. Sacrifice of lambs. Hmm. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes... That's a hint about the Messiah coming. You will see in numbers that the Jews are getting bitten by snakes, okay, and dying because of their disobedience. And they come to Moses and say, please help us. And Moses, God tells Moses, here's what to do. Get a pole, yeah, make a bronze snake and put the snake up on the pole. Got the picture? And anyone who looks to that snake in faith will live. Centuries later, Jesus Christ becomes sin for us, that's in 2 Corinthians, up on a pole. And all who look to him in faith believe. Are you saying Jesus is in the Old Testament? I am. But it's a mystery. It's a little cloudy for them. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Psalm 22 is written in the first person by a person that I am being crucified. David wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of hints, but the mystery gets unveiled, phase one, when Jesus shows up, right? And starts preaching and doing miracles and eventually dies on a cross. Why do you say phase one? Isn't that it? No, phase two is the revelation, what we just studied, right? Where he comes back and you see him as he really is, not just a a weak human being, but the God of the universe. Okay, now that everyone's totally confused, let's keep rolling. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Um, mysteries in the New Testament. Yeah, previously hidden, now revealed. The mystery of, these are all uh, Ephesians 5, the mystery of the church. You say, that's not in the Old Testament. That's right. It was revealed later that this Messiah would have groups of people believing in him, and most of them would not be Jews. The whole idea of the Gentile church, the mystery of lawlessness, why the sin continues, that's 2 Thessalonians 2. The mystery of the seven stars and seven candlesticks in Revelation, the mystery of the resurrection, Christ's and yours, which is still coming. The mystery of the blindness of Israel for a time. They don't see it yet. They will. The harlot of the church, Revelation 17. The mystery that this church thing is going to be a Christian place, but Satan's going to infiltrate it, and there's going to be a lot of the church is going to go off the rails. Before Christ returns, something has to happen called the apostasy, meaning a great falling away of a lot of people you and I thought were Christians are going to seem to fall away and what that means is they were never believers at all, but they sure looked like it and talked like it. A falling away before the end. The mystery of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus shocks the Jews and says, the kingdom of heaven is 
near. The kingdom of heaven is among you. Pretty amazing. Um, let's see. Go back to that verse before we move on. Verse 7, there's more there. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined. Destined? Yes. You mean he can say stuff and it has to happen? Yes. And it did. Yes. For our glory, when did he do it? Before time began. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you and me. Ephesians 1. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, who crucified him? The rulers, here it could be the Jewish rulers, remember? It could be Pontius Pilate, who was a ruler, right? Those are the people that were in, in, involved in the crucifixion of the Lord. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They were rulers. They were smart. They were educated. They were powerful. They didn't get it. Why? Well, we may not get to it this week. The whole idea of the equipment being missing. Hopefully we will. Let's keep rolling. I'm just reading notes on verse 8 here. Uh, yeah. Paul calls Jesus in verse 8. Did you see it? They wouldn't have crucified and he uses a term he doesn't use anywhere else. The Lord of glory. Some scholars think it's the highest term Paul ever uses for Jesus Christ. The Lord of all glory. The glory is all his. Verse 9. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of mind, uh, heart of man, the things that God has prepared for him. That verse is commonly used for heaven, right? And there's some truth in that. Because if you tell me, I know exactly what heaven's going to be about, I'll tell you, there's a Greek word for that, baloney. No, you don't. I think every single Christian is shocked at how awesome heaven is when they get there. And it's nothing like we're imagining. It's way better. But this verse, although that's true, is not really talking about heaven uh, per se. He's quoting Isaiah 64. The, the, the whole idea, the context of Isaiah 64 is Israel is in captivity. The whole nation's been taken captive. We're a bunch of slaves. We're never going to get free. Where are you, God, is what they're saying. Okay, and they're waiting for, praying for, asking for God's deliverance and things, listen, circumstances look really bleak. You ever been there? I, I don't know if there's any hope. That's where God goes, oh good, now I can act and you'll know it was really me and not you, not chance, not him wishful thinking. It's really gonna be me. Um, so that's the context. And the point of Isaiah 64 is, as they're saying, there's no hope. God had a plan. They didn't have to fear. Their future was secure. They end up getting released out of, in an unlikely way, out of that captivity. He's saying that sort of thing, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, that's the kind of things God has prepared for those, verse 9 who love him. God will always surprise you. 
Have you noticed that? You ever pray for something really, really hard and God solves the problem, but not that way that you were praying? You ever do this? Tell God about the problem. Lord, here's the problem, as if he needs information, right? Here's the situation, God. And it's okay to pour your heart out to God. And here's what you should do. You ever do that? You are, are um, advising the God of the universe. You read the Lord's Prayer. You know what there is there? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, period. I'm so confident your will is so much higher and better than mine. You go for it any way you think would be best. Do what works in your mind, in your kingdom, God. It's awesome. Okay, verse 10. Did we finish verse 9? Did we beat that dead horse? I think we did. Yeah. Who are these things prepared for? Those who love him, his people. There's such a thing as common grace. You know, there's rain that fell that's going to bless every well in our area. Christians' wells and unbelievers. Atheists' wells are going to be blessed by this rain that we just had. You realize that? Common grace. But these sorts of things that we can't even imagine are for those who love him, believers. Verse 10. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one, do you see that? No one? No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, let's go back. We're almost there, but we're not going to make it tonight. We'll do it next week. The whole equipment thing. You got to come back next week. Same time, same bat channel to find out. Verse 10. These are the things that God has revealed to us by His Spirit. So they're not unknown. They're revealed. Did you see that? What things? What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind ever conceived. No Jew before the time of Christ ever conceived. You know, Ezekiel, I have an idea. What, what if God became a man, yeah, and came to earth and lived a perfect sinless life, did miracles, preached the most incredible wisdom ever heard, yes, and then died for the sins of the world? Nobody ever thought that up except God. There's no Jew ever that wrote. We have the writings of the rabbis all throughout history. It ain't in there. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. But he's revealed these things, verse 10, by his spirit. Do you realize that if you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? And you could read the same Bible and it would make zero sense to you or very, very, very little. I know because I read the Bible when I wasn't a Christian and I thought, I, I don't get it at all. Did you? Anybody here? Just, hmm. You become a Christian and so I'm going to introduce the subject and we'll finish it next week. The equipment. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay, I've done this before. I know you've heard it many times. I'm going to do it once more. Okay, everybody be really quiet in this room really quiet. Do you hear it? There's Mexican music playing. Country, country music. Can you hear it? What's wrong with you people? There's Christian, oh, there's Christian sermons. Can you hear it? Hard rock. 
soul music, rap music is playing, talk radio about um, politics and stuff. Is, oh, there's Chinese music. Joe's, Joe's starting to lose it, right? Like mental floss, you know what that is, mental floss? What's the point? You know why you people can't hear it? You don't have the equipment. But if we had a radio here and I could flip the dial, you'd find out I'm right about all of those things, right? Spanish, cuantando, porque no tenemos, and then hard rock, and then country music, you'd hear it all. But without the equipment, you can listen in here for 10 weeks. Nothing. That's what it's like to read the Bible, hear the gospel without the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit, when you tune in, if you will, I don't mean that in a new age way or anything, the Holy Spirit reveals what his word means to you. As you read it and in your mind and in your spirit and brings it to mind in other ways, and it's a louder conscience that tells you don't do that. Don't think that. Go tell her you're sorry for saying that. Tell him you're sorry for stealing that. Oh, no, that's a, go tell him. It's a whole different thing. If that's true, and it is, then who gets the glory for how spiritual you think you are? You just have the equipment. You got a radio. You got the internet. You got Wi-Fi, Christian Wi-Fi, the Holy Spirit. But it's not impersonal. It's a person. It's God living inside of you and me. We'll talk more about the equipment next week. And that's why we can understand the deep things of God. Let's pray and we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could be in your word. And it's a little overwhelming when we realize that uh, we don't really have any worldly wisdom. And it's a good thing, God. Instead, we have your wisdom and the beauty of a simple but profound, humble gospel where your son takes on human flesh and dies in our place humbly and rises from the dead, a picture of what will happen to all who believe. We are forgiven. Because of that, we have your Holy Spirit living inside of us. God, help us to hear your spirit when he speaks to us in your word and as we pray and even gives us a sense of who we ought to be calling or praying for or what we ought to be doing. May we listen to the call and heed it and obey it. Thank you for these truths, God. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know before you leave. And those of you on Zoom, God bless. We'll see you next time. Thanks for being here.